Well, love being here. Uh, love this church and your pastor. And uh, had the opportunity past few days to be staying with the Harris family. Known them forever. Love them as well. And uh, the church here. I've been able to come here many times. I couldn't even count. Probably seven or eight times at least to the Amen Conference. Always had a wonderful time here. But the last time I've been at this church on a Sunday, you were in the old building. <laughs> So that's been a minute, and so I'm excited just to be here today on a Sunday and see the services and how God's working, and I love it. So thrilled for the opportunity to preach tonight. Grateful to uh, your pastor for uh, extending that invitation. Uh, man, the song service was good tonight. The songs really go perfectly in line with where I'm going tonight, which is just going to be a simple message about our sin and the righteousness of Christ. Uh, before I get started, let me give you a quick update on the ministry there. Uh, it was a blessing. We were able last July, so a year and a half ago, to move from Missouri, about 20-hour drive down to Oro Valley, Arizona, and uh, just start in ministry there right in the middle of COVID, about three or four weeks after the church had gone back to meeting after the initial lockdown. And so there were some challenges with that, with COVID, just with the transition, some families moving, different stuff like that. Uh, but the blessing is that right now, I mean, on a Sunday morning service, probably something like a third or more of the congregation are all people that have come this year, this calendar year. And so there's new people coming. God is working in lives. I love seeing that. And so it is a blessing. Uh, we're so thankful. It's, the church is 11 years old now. We're so thankful for all the people that have invested uh, money and prayers and just hard work uh, in that church being started. I never want to take that for granted. There's fruit in heaven uh, to the account of many in this room and many others uh, who've been involved from the very first in that church. So thrilled to be there, but excited to be here tonight. So Zechariah chapter 3, if you would, this evening. Zechariah chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament right toward the end of the Old Testament. So if you hit Matthew, go backwards about five or six pages. Zechariah chapter 3. I want to preach to you tonight, if the Lord will help me, a message titled, The Gospel According to Zechariah. And this passage addresses a question that is just as relevant today as it ever has been, and that is, is the question of the heart of the gospel. How can a holy God bless a sinful people? How can a holy God bless a sinful people? It's the tension that's been in place throughout the pages of the Bible. From the Garden of Eden, we see that God loves people and God has a desire to bless his people. And yet what always stands in between? Our sin. Sin was what drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and has separated us from God ever since. And so how can a God who is holy, who cannot even abide the presence of sin, how can that God bless us, sinners, that's what this passage in Zechariah addresses. Let me pray with you before I proceed with the message tonight. Lord, we're so thankful to be able to gather together in your house this evening. We're thankful to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, to be Christians, to rejoice in the new identity that you've given us in your son. Lord, to not have to judge ourselves compared to other people, not have to judge ourselves to some man-made standard, but Lord, to rejoice in the adoption of sons and daughters that we have through Christ. Lord, help us to embrace and live in that identity. Help us to rejoice in the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the gospel tonight. 
I pray that as I preach your word, you'd help me to preach with clarity, with passion, with wisdom, with gentleness, with grace. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would both empower me as I preach and that your spirit would convict and encourage the hearts of all those that hear. Lord, your word says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And Lord, that's what we want tonight. Bless us as we gather in your name around your word. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. In a couple of minutes, we'll read our text in Zechariah 3, but let me give you the context of this chapter before we do. Zechariah was a prophet sent by God to the nation of Judah. The Jews had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years as God judged them for their sin and rebellion and idolatry. And God delivered them from exile, and yet not all was well. They were back in their homeland, but the story was not going well. They were facing great opposition in the land as they tried to rebuild the city and the walls and the temple there in Jerusalem. They were opposed by enemies from outside their borders. But more than that, the greatest difficulties that beset them were their own sinful natures. They were lazy. They were rebellious. They were corrupt. They married idolaters. They cheated each other. They were full of sin. And to this nation, God raised up leaders like Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, priests like Ezra and Joshua and prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to speak the truth, yet the nation was still sinful in God's sight. And so Zechariah comes to them in this time with a very simple message calling them to repent, to turn to God. And yet Zechariah throughout this book also brings the nation incredible messages of hope. Much of the book has some of the most positive messages you'll see in any of the prophets in the Old Testament. And so in these first six chapters of the book, he has eight visions from the Lord that he proclaims to the people. And there's these words of hope and encouragement, promises that Jerusalem will be built. Listen to some of these verses. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Another verse in these early chapters says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Incredible promises, but a huge question remains. How could God fulfill these promises of hope that he made to the people of Israel? Now, the problem is not the power of God. God can do anything. Are you with me? God can do anything. That's not the issue. That's not the holdup. Here's the problem, the sin of the people. How could God bless a nation whose behavior, as I've described, was truly awful. How could God keep these wonderful promises to a nation that wallowed in their sin? And as we fast forward to the present day, shouldn't that be our question as well? God's word, if you read through it and study God's word, it is full of amazing and wonderful promises to God's people. But as you read all these things, if you look at yourself in the mirror, you ought to ask yourself the question, how can God bless me in the way that he promises to, given who I am? And what I do. And if you perform an honest self assessment, you run into this obstacle. We are sinners. We are unworthy of the blessings of a God who's full of abundant mercy and yet is also holy. And that's the context of Zechariah's fourth vision, and it's recorded in Zechariah chapter 3. And we'll read through this chapter, 10 verses tonight. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me 
Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Zechariah said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. In this vision that Zechariah sees here in chapter 3, he sees a courtroom setting. In this courtroom, the judge is the angel of the Lord. It's often a reference to the visible appearance of God himself or, or Jesus Christ. The defendant is a man named Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And the prosecuting attorney is none other than Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren, the adversary of the saints. Here's what is at stake. Joshua is, is on trial, not just for himself, but as a representative of the entire nation of Judah. Now, who was this Joshua? Well, Joshua was the grandson of the last high priest of Judah at the time when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And so by virtue of his birthright, Joshua himself became the high priest of Judah on their return to the land. So he is the high priest of the people. As high priest, he was intended to be the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. But more than that, he was intended to be the representative of the entire people. Now, the laws of Moses, the laws of the Old Testament dictated that once a year, the high priest would enter the presence of God in the innermost sanctuary of the temple alone. No one else could enter with him. He would enter there and by himself, he would make atonement for the sins of the people in that sanctuary. He would offer a sacrifice. He would represent the entire nation interceding to God on their behalf and acting as a mediator between the Israelites and a holy God. That's what the office of the high priest was meant to do. That's who Joshua was. He, was. he was the man who was meant to be the mediator between the people of Israel and God. And in the exercise of his high priestly role, there's one qualification that mattered above all the others. The high priest must be holy. He must be pure. 
You look in the book of Leviticus, you see these qualifications. Priests could not have any physical disability or defect. They must keep themselves pure from sin. There were ceremonial laws that covered what clothes they could wear and and who they could marry and how they would cleanse themselves and how they were to enter the presence of God. And all of these laws are just meant to convey to us the office of a high priest is a special one and the high priest must above all be absolutely holy in order to enter the presence of God. That's the qualifications. And all of these laws, they were a reminder of this powerful but terrifying truth. And that is that God is utterly and completely holy. He's pure. There's no thought of sin in him. No impurity can enter his presence. And yet in this scene that Zechariah sees, here's the terrible problem in this courtroom scene. Joshua, the high priest, the man who above all else must be holy, is clothed in filthy garments. This clothing is vile. Verse 3, filthy garments. The word filthy is used in other parts of the Bible to describe feces or vomit. What he's wearing is truly disgusting. He's in sewage-stained clothes, and he's standing in the presence of a thrice-holy God. Do you see the problem here? He enters into the courtroom, and he's clothed not just in rags, but in filth, in sewage, and he stands in the presence of a holy God. It's a terrifying scene. Joshua cannot be in the presence of God in this attire. The filthy garments, of course, represent his sin. And in this holy courtroom of God, Joshua stands condemned by his iniquity. But let me remind you that more is at stake here than just Joshua himself. Because remember, as high priest, Joshua is the representative of the entire nation. So understand this, if Joshua, the most pure, the most holy man that the nation of Judah had to offer, if he in God's presence is clothed in sewage, what chance is there of finding righteousness anywhere else in the land? There's none. That's the most pure man that they have to offer and he's there in sewage and he represents the people. And so all of the people, their sin condemns them before God. Their sin stands between them And God, it stands between them and the promises that God has made, intending to bless his people. And yet, how can God bless a nation clothed in filth? Their sin guarantees God's inevitable judgment upon them. And in that courtroom scene, Satan is there to accuse Joshua. Oh, friend, this is a role he is always ready to fulfill. And yet, if you notice in this moment, Satan, the prosecuting attorney, doesn't say a word. Why? He doesn't have to. Joshua's guilt is evident. The prosecuting attorney makes no motion, presents no evidence of Joshua's guilt because it's right there. His sin is so blatantly obvious that he can't say a word in his own defense and Satan doesn't even have to accuse him. He stands condemned before God, not just for himself, but as a representative of the entire nation of Judah, condemned and guilty before God because of their sin. That's the terrifying scene In this courtroom, he offers no defense. What can he say? What can he do in the presence of a holy God? He's guilty. The nation is guilty. And in that moment, when all hope is lost, there's nothing to be said, no argument to be made. In that moment, a voice speaks in the courtroom, and it's not Satan speaking to accuse, and it's not Joshua speaking to defend himself. No, friend, it is the voice of the Lord. The Lord speaks to Satan, or he speaks there in the courtroom, and he says this, 
The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Verse two, God intervenes. When Joshua had nothing to say on his own behalf, God stepped in. God rebuked Satan. God takes Joshua's part here. God announces that he has chosen Jerusalem. And in all their guilt and all their sin, God has chosen them as his own. God delivers them from their captivity like a brand plucked out of the fire. You've seen maybe a fireplace and a stick in there and the end of it has caught. And yet right as it's beginning to smolder, you pull that out of the fire and you quench that flame and it's saved. And the end is blackened there. That's how God had saved the nation of Israel, sparing them from his judgment at the last possible moment. God intervenes. He steps in. They were about to be consumed in exile And he stepped in and delivered them, brought them back home. When back in the land, they were about to be overwhelmed by their enemies. God snatched them from the flames. Only God could deliver them. And he did. Look at verse three and verse four. Verse three, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered, God answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And if it's not clear enough, he adds, Unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. God takes away the sin-stained garments. He replaces them with spotless priestly robes. God cleanses Joshua's iniquity. God clothes him with righteousness, and God restores him to service. Zechariah sees this. Remember, he's watching this vision unfold. He sees this. He gets excited. Verse 5, Joshua speaks up. He said, Let them set a fair miter upon his head. This miter, it's this ornate hat. Maybe you've seen some of the old pictures or illustrations of the old priests. It's this fancy hat that they would wear as they would fulfill these roles. And on this hat, it's described in Exodus 28. On this hat, there was a gold plate with these words inscribed. Listen, holiness to the Lord In just a matter of moments, Joshua the high priest had gone from a man clothed in filth and sewage to a man wearing a hat that proclaimed holiness to the Lord. That's a transformation, friend. This happens. He's transformed. Joshua's given a ministry, verses 6 and 7. God charges him with this ministry, keeping his house. If he lived in holiness and obeys God's word, then he would lead God's people spiritually. He'd have an eternal reward, a place among those that stand by, among the angels. Joshua is cleansed and restored, and it's this incredible moment and scene there in this courtroom in these first seven verses. But a question should still remain for us. How is this possible? If God is just, if God is a good judge, a fair judge, and we know he is, if God is a fair judge, then how, consistent with his justice, can God step into this courtroom and change Joshua's apparel, can cleanse his sin and and clothe him in holiness? How can God do that? That's the question that's still there. How can he strip off his filthy garments and put on the priestly robes, but still satisfy justice? Verses 8 through 10, in these verses, God explains it, and he makes a wonderful promise to his people. Here now, he says in verse 8, listen up, the Messiah is coming. That's verse 8. He will be the true eternal high priest. He will forever atone for the sins of his people. Verse 8, Joshua and the other high priests, they were men wondered at. They were to be signs of someone else to come. They were pictures of someone else down the line who would be a greater high priest than Joshua could ever be. They were, they were signs. And then in the, even Joshua's name, in fact, 
means Jehovah saves. And if you take the very same word that in the Old Testament is spelled Joshua, in the New Testament, that becomes the name Jesus, Jehovah saves. Everything about Joshua is pointing to Christ. The end of verse eight, the Bible says this, God promises, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. This is two messianic terms, terms that speak of the Messiah. My servant, it's used frequently in Isaiah, especially Isaiah chapter 53, that wonderful chapter about the death of Christ, my servant. And then the branch, the branch, it's used in several of the prophets. It emphasizes that Christ will grow out of David's family tree and that he'll be fruitful in his growth. You see, God had had made an eternal covenant with King David. God promised David, hey, your line is gonna last forever. There'll, There'll always be a king from your descendants, but David's line seemed to die. It seemed to end. You know, have you ever cut a tree down? You cut that tree down and the stump is there in the ground and you think, it's gone, it's dead. But what happens? You leave, a couple of months you come back, some rain has fallen and you see new life growing from that stump, don't you? You see branches and growing up from there and there's new life where life had apparently ended and in the same way when David's line was apparently cut off and ended, years later, Jesus Christ, the branch rises and grows. He comes, Isaiah says, like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. At his birth, an angel proclaimed, he shall be great and shall be called the son and shall be the son of the highest and the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. That's the branch. Here's what the branch will accomplish. Jeremiah 23 says this, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. This is the name that the branch will be called. Jeremiah says this, the Lord our righteousness. That's the name of the branch, the Lord our righteousness. So if you have the question, how could God's justice be satisfied? How could the sin of Joshua and the people be atoned and removed? It would be removed through the sinless sacrifice of the coming high priest, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the righteous branch, the son of David. He is our righteousness. He would remove this sin. Only the branch, the Messiah, could finally atone. Look down in verse 9. Verse nine, for behold, this stone, what is this stone? I believe it's a a reference to the priestly garments with which God had clothed Joshua. Remember, he clothes him in these new robes. And the high priests, if if you study it out in other parts of the Old Testament, the high priest would wear a breastplate with these precious stones, these jewels in it. And on these stones, there'd be 12 of them. On these stones would be engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. And here's what this signified. Every time the high priest clothed in these robes and in this breastplate went into the holy place and offered that sacrifice, he was bearing the people. He was representing the people as he wore their names on his clothes. He's representing the people before God. But this verse says there's a stone and God engraves it himself. Here's the meaning. God knows the names of his people. Book of Isaiah tells us, Behold, God says, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Verse goes on in Isaiah 49, it asks, can a mother forget her newborn baby? It's the strongest kind of love that we can imagine, isn't it? You go to a hospital, 
You see a mother with that newborn baby. You think of the pride and the joy and the love there, that mother that would give her life in a heartbeat for that little day-old child. It's the strongest love we can imagine. And yet God says, yeah, it's possible that a mother could forget her, her newborn baby, but God says, I will never forget you. God knows our names. He sees them. He knows them. He'll remove their sin. Verse 9, end of the verse. God promises this. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Once a year, every observant Jew would keep Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It was the holiest day of the year. That was the day we talked about earlier where the high priest would go into the temple bearing the sins of the people. And, and he would make atonement for the sin of the nation once a year. And every year, God would accept that sacrifice, but only temporarily, only until the next year. It always had to be repeated. And yet, God promises every, that every day of atonement for centuries, it pointed to one future day when God says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day, permanently, forever. There's no going back into the temple. There's no more sacrifice for sins, Hebrews says. It's all to be atoned for when the great high priest, through his death on the cross, forever makes atonement for the sins of the world. It's all forgiven. It's all cleared. That's what Jesus does. And one day, all of our sin would be removed God makes a final promise in verse 10. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts. What's that day? Well, it's not the same day as the one day in verse 9. You see, that day, all through the prophets, that term speaks of the second coming of the Lord. The day when he will make everything right. It's a day of judgment for the wicked and a day of deliverance from, from, from sin and peace for God's people. And in that day, verse 10, God will finally deliver his people and give them the eternal peace that he has promised. And that's a promise that applies right to us because there's a day still coming when God will give us peace eternally. These are the promises of this text. What does Zechariah chapter three teach us about the gospel? Well, it teaches us this. All of us, like Joshua, are clothed in filthy garments. No matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, if you approach God in your works and what you are wearing, you are clothed in sewage. Each day, one, each, each one of us, uh, one day will stand before God. Romans chapter 14, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That courtroom scene is coming one day for each of us in this room. You'll stand in that courtroom one day. You'll be the defendant. Satan will be the accuser. God will be the righteous judge. And in that day, what will your plea be? And you know, there's so many people in the world today, so many religions in this world that are all about putting on clothes. They're all about trying to dress up in the garments that you can. And yet, you know what the, the best garments that we have look like to God? They look like sewage, just like Joshua wore. You know, the book of Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. I want you to think about this for a minute. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. God doesn't say our sin is like filthy rags because we could understand that. I mean, each of us, we could go back in our minds and in our memories and we could think of things that we have done that are like filthy rags. We could think of bad decisions we've made, of attitudes that we've had, of actions we've committed that are like filthy rags. But that's not what God says is like filthy rags. Our righteousness, he says, is like filthy rags. What does that mean? The good things that we do the things, if you're putting your resume together, 
<laughs> that you would say, these are the accomplishments in life of which I am most proud. Here's the list. I'm a, I'm a good dad or I'm a good mom. I've, I've done great in school. I'm kind to other people. I volunteer for these charities. The good things that we've done. I've been baptized. I attend church regularly. I speak kindly of other people. That list, God looks at that and says, sewage, filthy rags. That's a discouraging message if it stops there, isn't it? But that's what God says. None of us are any better than Joshua. Remember, Joshua was not some criminal they took out of the jails in in Jerusalem to stand before God. No, he's the high priest. He's the best they have to offer. He's the most religious. He's the one who devoted his whole life to serving and pleasing God, and yet he's filthy. So this teaches us that there is absolutely no hope of pleasing the judge in our own efforts. And so many religions in this world sell people the lie that you can somehow be good enough to earn God's favor. That you can somehow be good enough on that day of judgment. Islam will tell you there's this big scale when you die. You've seen those big scales, right, that balance out one side or the other. They say there's this big scale and your good deeds will be on the one side and your bad deeds will be on the other side and you'll weigh it out. And if your good deeds are more, you'll be good enough for God. The Bible says there's not a chance Because even our good deeds are filth and sewage to God. That's how far all of sin, the Bible says, falls short of the glory of God. So only the righteousness of Christ can replace your filthy rags. And it's so important that we understand that there is a high priest who's died for us, who's made atonement for us. He is our righteousness. And if today, and I don't know hearts in here, I don't know most of your names or, or where you're at spiritually, but I know this, if there's anyone in this room who's relying on anything else other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cleanse your sins and to give you standing with God, it won't work. Friend, don't try. Don't waste your life, years and decades, trying to be good enough to please God because it'll never happen. Instead, if you recognize there's a high priest, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross of Calvary for my sins to make atonement forever, And if you'll come to him in simple repentance and faith, he'll forgive you and cleanse you and you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, just like Joshua was. That's the message of the gospel. And it could be that there's some here in this room who need to hear that message because you've never believed it, you've never received it, and the day is coming when you could stand in that courtroom clothed in garments just as filthy as Joshua's. And friend, I don't want that to happen to you. But it's very likely in a room like this, a Sunday night, that the majority of people in this room, even the great majority, are believers. I genuinely hope and believe that's the case. So then this question occurs, why would I preach this gospel message to this group? Because this group is very likely made up of people who have heard this message 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times perhaps. So why would I remind you of it tonight? I want to give you two reasons. Number one, If we neglect the gospel, we have nothing to offer other people. Nothing to offer other people. The only reason that Fellowship Baptist Church exists here in liberal Kansas and has has the doors open every service time, it's because of the gospel and because of the righteousness of Christ. There's no other reason. The only reason this church bothers with a mission and, and growth steps and all that, it's just because of the gospel. It's just because the church is helping people find and follow Jesus. And without that, This might just as well be a country club or a grocery store. Might as well be anything else. 
And so this ought to play into how we think about church and how we think about our relationships with other people. Because it's easy, isn't it, for our focus to be, well, if only I can make society a better place. And man, that's a worthy goal. And yet, if everybody in this town was a good person but didn't believe in Christ, it wouldn't be worth a cent. We have to recognize what people need is not just more righteousness. The primary thing we need to work for isn't political change, though that's not a bad thing, but that's not the primary thing. We need to pray for and work for changed hearts. And and this church, man, I'm glad that this church can find so many ways to do good in this community and and to be a place of, of wonderful fellowship and encouragement and praying for each other. And that's wonderful. Friendships are made here that will last for the rest of your lives. That's incredible. But none of that means a thing without the gospel at the center. So we must constantly remind ourselves of the gospel because there's no other reason for this church to exist. We have nothing to offer anyone else apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's the first reason. If we neglect the gospel, we have nothing to offer other people. Here's the second reason tonight. If we neglect the gospel, we have nothing to sustain our souls. Hear me, Christian, tonight. You need the gospel. You need to be reminded of the gospel. Sometimes it's easy for us to think, yeah, the gospel, I know that. That's, that's what I believed 20 years ago when I got saved. I don't need that now. Oh, yes. Every single morning, brother, sister, when we wake up in the morning, you need the gospel. Let me tell you what I mean. Let, let, me, let me show you what happens when you neglect the gospel. If you neglect the gospel as a Christian in your own soul, here's what happens. You start thinking as a Christian, you know what? I bet I can please God if I act a particular way. I bet, man, if I, if I dress or look a particular way, if I say the right things, if, if I act like this, I bet God will be happy with me. Friend, the only reason God is happy with any of us is because of the blood of his son. It's the gospel. And you know what happens when we build a life about me being a good person and doing all these things and forgetting about the gospel of Christ? Become prideful, pharisaical, because it's all about us. And we get proud of of our garments that we're wearing. Look at me. And we don't realize the righteousness of Christ is the only clothing that we have. If we neglect that, we'll we'll become proud. If, If we neglect the gospel, we'll give in to guilt. As Christians, man, it's so easy. We recognize, yeah, years ago, I believed the gospel. Christ forgave me. Christ saved me. But what happens when we still deal with sin? Because we do. In fact, First John says, the, the Apostle John says that if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. In fact, you're calling God a liar if you say that you never sin. So all of us deal with sin. So what happens as a Christian when we deal with sin? Well, if we don't remind ourselves of the gospel, we're going to get discouraged and weighed down in that sin. And I've been there. I've dealt with sin. You have too. You, you know you have. We've dealt with sin and guilt over that sin. And you think, I don't know if I can even talk to God, I don't know if I can ever be right with God again. I don't even know if I can show my face in church because this sin, this guilt just overwhelms me. And there are people that live their lives. They're Christians. I'm not talking unsaved people. They're Christians who live their lives stewing and miserable because of guilt and shame. They have no business doing that because the gospel is there to cleanse it, to forgive it. There are people maybe who've been, who've been sold a bill of goods by religions or by a church somewhere that they can never be good enough for God. And the, the fact of the matter is the gospel makes us good enough for God, not anything that we do. 
There are people who live in guilt and shame, and we don't need to do that. You know what? We're not standing in a courtroom tonight, and yet each of us have to deal with the accuser, don't we? With Satan. And just as surely as Satan in that vision was standing in the courtroom of God and and ready to accuse Joshua, Satan comes to our hearts, doesn't he? We sin, we, we feel convicted of, of our lack of passion for God, whatever, whatever happens, and Satan is there ready to accuse us, and he throws us into doubt and, and fear and guilt, and we wrestle with all of these things, and if we don't remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, you'll give in to Satan, you'll be discouraged, and friend, without the gospel, we have nothing to sustain our souls. Don't let Satan discourage you by reminding you of your sin. There's a wonderful hymn, I imagine you probably sing it here, called Before the Throne of God Above. Here's the second verse. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Remind yourself of the gospel tonight, brother and sister. If nothing else, take some time to be thankful and rejoice in the righteousness of Christ applied to your account. Let's pray.